unpack all things related to mothering. This is a community where we aim to create a comfortable space that allows for active discussion without judgment. Find us at thecuriousmother.com and follow us on social media. Our Instagram is at thecuriousmother. Welcome back to The Curious Mother. I'm Kristen Daly. And I'm Melissa Miller. So Melissa, what have you been curious about lately? I hear about melatonin all the time. Mm. It's everywhere. And um, I was just at Trader Joe's recently and noticed all the options of melatonin on their shelf. And Mm. I started thinking about, I'm not sure people have all the information they need on melatonin to make a good judgment. Mm -hmm. And who better to ask about it than our sleep expert, Kristen (laughs) Daly. So I was hoping that we could hear from you what everybody needs to know about melatonin today. Yeah. So um, definitely something I love to talk and think about. It's interesting. I was actually giving a talk um, to a group of psychologists recently and and only briefly mentioned uh, melatonin because we were talking about like kind of heavier sleep meds. But then one of the psychologists at the talk reached out to me later and said, you expressed that you don't like melatonin, but you didn't really clarify very much why. And I would like to understand that better because she works with kids on the autism spectrum. And she had said that a training she had been at had really promoted the use of melatonin and just wanted to kind of pull together our differing opinions. And I really loved being able to have that question because it really prompted me to dig back into the literature. You know, sometimes when we have statements that we make on a regular basis, it always is good to be able to go back and evaluate the truth behind them. So I just recently did a pretty deep dive into the literature and what it says about the use of melatonin. And with my sleep clients, I see it all the time. You know, when you have a kiddo who isn't sleeping well, one of the first line interventions often, um, and often at the recommendation of the pediatrician, is try some melatonin that will help regulate their sleep. And the challenge I always have with that is, well, let me first talk about like what melatonin is and what it isn't. Yes. Okay. So melatonin is a hormone that's secreted in the pineal gland. And what it signals to our brain is that we are in the dark. It is the evening and we have certain processes that are associated with being in the dark. The big thing is obviously sleep. But then we also have increases in immune activity at night and, um, you know, there are different metabolic changes that occur when we are sleeping and melatonin kind of is the pathway or it helps to really kind of kick off a lot of those processes. So melatonin is really about signaling time to the brain and signaling evening activities versus daytime activities. And so when our eyeballs get into dim light, receptors in the back of our eyeballs will communicate to the suprachiasmatic nuclei and they are actually going to be the thing that helps to promote the production and release of melatonin. Melatonin is closely metabolized with serotonin so we have to have enough serotonin in our brains for us to be able to have adequate melatonin and then melatonin will remain active in the brain throughout the time that we are in dim light. So it has a evening activity and then it dissipates in anticipation of wakefulness in the morning. So a lot of times when we think about using melatonin, our best research is actually done in folks who don't make their own melatonin. Um, People who do not have functioning retinas are, are, are blind in that capacity will not make their own melatonin. And so they have what's called a free running circadian rhythm. And so melatonin helps to try to keep their clock system in check. It helps their clock system work. 
When we use melatonin, our normal approach is trying to help encourage sleep by having more available melatonin, but also even more importantly, helping the brain know when it's supposed to be sleeping versus when it's supposed to be awake. And so when we have somebody who, say, is traveling across distances, um, is going to go across many time zones, melatonin can be really helpful in trying to help teach the brain and kind of catch up when we need to create those clock shifts. Or, for example, some of my folks, as we age, so when we're young, we tend to have a pretty normal functioning clock system. As we go through adolescence, we get what's called a delayed sleep phase. So a lot of adolescents, pretty their brains are happier staying up really late at night and then sleeping later in the morning. And then as we age, we actually get what's called an advanced sleep cycle. And so what happens with folks who are older, sometimes they'll find themselves being really sleepy and wanting to go to bed at like, say, 7 or 8 p.m. and then awake for the day at like 3 or 4 And melatonin can be a great treatment for both delayed sleep phase or advanced sleep phase. We actually time the melatonin administration to kind of think about which direction we're trying to push the clock. You know, if you're trying to push the clock backwards, you're going to have melatonin be later. And if you're trying to push the clock earlier, we give melatonin earlier. You know, actually, the way we often use it in folks who are um, elderly and have like, you know, want to go to bed at 7, wake up at 3, is we'll actually use baby doses of melatonin at 3 a.m. to pull their clock a little bit later. So that's how it's typically administered. The challenge is, number one, melatonin is a food supplement or it's not, it's not a regulated medication. Now, there are, of course, like prescription-grade melatonins, but most people are not taking the prescription-grade melatonin. Um, they're taking what they're buying. Yeah, yeah, the gummies. (laughs) And so that's kind of challenge number one. You know, a few years ago, there was a study looking at how does the amount of melatonin that's in the supplement match what's on the bottle? And are all of the active ingredients reported on the bottle that are noteworthy? And they found that very few, like it was, I think it was 23% of the melatonins that they checked actually had the amount of melatonin listed on the bottle accurately. That's terrifying. Yeah. So that was kind of challenge number one. You don't even know how much you're getting. And it could be off by a lot. And so, and the hard part was it was usually off by way more versus less. And the challenge is... Ooh. Yeah, exactly. So, And this is something where less is more. You know, like you really want to... I, I always kind of guide people that we want to look at the smallest dosage possible because more melatonin is not actually going to equal more sleep is not going to be helpful which is such a great point i have so many people who come in and they're like oh i'm taking melatonin just a little bit like 10 milligrams and my jaw hits the ground yes but when you look at the bottles there are some that are even higher than yeah so we'll, we'll we'll get into that later about appropriate dosing yeah and so number one you don't know what you're getting and in this study they found that not only were the, mel- the amounts of melatonin off, but there were sometimes other ingredients that weren't listed that were actually um, types of serotonin. And that's not necessarily surprising. Melatonin and serotonin are closely related compounds. But you don't want to be supplementing serotonin if you don't need to. Right. you know. And so then you have now this other chemical that's present that has its own risks and, and challenges. And so... There you have that. So that's kind of problem number one. What's in the bottle? 
And, you know, years and years and years ago, when I was first going through my behavioral sleep training, I went to a special seminar on the usage of melatonin. And this, I think, has really shaped a lot of my viewpoints. And so this is why it was really good for me to, like, go back and review the data. Because one of the things that the uh, doctor who was leading the training really pushed for was that you should find a, a brand you like and one that you're comfortable using with your clients because if you can kind of be very specific about which brand they're using, then you're going to have a little bit better control over how much exposure they're having. But I've honestly never been able to get to that place because there are more and more manufacturers all the time. You know, you go into any health food store, you're going to see a lot of different manufacturers. So and, how does yeah. somebody go about finding one they can trust? It's difficult, you know, because some of them will have, you know, verification through a lab. I do think that that is at least helpful. I know that there are some big vitamin brands that have seals on them that say that they're lab verified. And I think that that can be a good pathway to having something that you trust. Mm -hmm. You also really want to pay attention to single ingredient supplements versus these ones that are kind of like casting a broad net, you know, Um, because some of the things that are used for sleep, um, aren't recommended in kids, the more ingredients that are in your supplement, the less you know you're actually working with something that could be a safe compound. Right. And so that's, you know, challenge number one, it's poorly regulated. Challenge number two, not everybody actually responds to exogenous melatonin. So what we see, or at least when I went through training, the big focus was only about one out of three people will convert this this hormone to something that's utilized. Really, you know, and so you're talking about something that's a very weak tool, right? And sometimes the challenge is everybody metabolizes it differently. So, one, you may not respond at all, or B, you might be a really slow metabolizer of it, which can lead to a lot of daytime issues like being really fatigued and you know feeling really struggling to maintain wakefulness during the day. So if you're one of those folks who's a really long metabolizer, you might be a little sedated during the day too. And that's not very functional for kids who need to be in school and learning. Another challenge is melatonin and insulin have opposite cycling as far as, so you can imagine insulin activity is one of the big signals of wakefulness. And and we have a lot of wakeful activities that are associated with insulin. And uh, melatonin and insulin tend to work counter each other. So when insulin is very active, it suppresses melatonin. Insulin is way stronger than melatonin. So there has been, at times, concerns about would melatonin affect the way the body uses insulin. We don't have a lot of data. This is one of the things I was digging into recently. We don't have a lot of data to support that. But what we do know is that melatonin can work against the body's ability to process foods and it can affect our fasting blood sugars. Really? So even though it may not be exactly related to whether or not insulin functions effectively, it can still, if we have an exposure to melatonin and say we eat something that has sugar in it, we may not absorb it or or be able to work through the impact of that food on our blood sugar. So not strong data yet, but at the same time, it does have some relationship with our, the way that we metabolize foods, and that just is another big concern. So let's talk about what dosing is supposed to look like. Yeah, and, and along with the dosing that it's supposed to look like, I want to ask the question of, like, how is it supposed to work? Because I have mm-hmm. a lot of clients who, who believe that taking it instantly makes them drowsy like a sleeping yeah, pill. Yeah, and like I think that when people take it and they immediately go to sleep, 
that's more likely a placebo effect than anything else. They would have gone to sleep on their own. Yes. So the way that melatonin works is melatonin release starts when we get into dim light. So it's very much controlled by light exposure to our eyeballs. And so what happens is when we get into dim light, uh, these receptors in the back of our eyeballs will become inhibited and they help to promote and facilitate the production of melatonin. Melatonin levels naturally rise for a two-hour period of time. And then we have release of the neurotransmitter GABA, and GABA is what actually makes us go to sleep. So as long as we are in the dark, both melatonin and GABA are active in the brain. So the thing is, is that optimum usage of melatonin is to have very small dose, like a half to one milligram max, about an hour and a half to two hours before you want to fall asleep. And that is going to mimic the body's natural phase response curve for melatonin. It's going to be the thing that closely matches the way your brain understands how to utilize melatonin. Other people will use melatonin also in high dose, trying to facilitate sleep onset. So if you imagine melatonin levels rise slowly over a two-hour period of time, if we use a high dose right when we want to go to sleep, that should hopefully match maximum melatonin dosage. But again, this is where it goes back to like, there's a ton of individual variability here and nobody really knows what your peak melatonin would be. So we're much safer going with what is a normal activity of melatonin versus trying to like push a sleep onset with a high dose of melatonin. It's not super effective anyways. You know, when we're looking at trying to put somebody to sleep with a medication, we have a lot more effective medications on the market. Melatonin would not be our first line. That being said, there are no medicines approved for sleeping kids. And, and that is one of the challenges that parents can have. Sometimes a medication called clonidine will be used for sleep in children. And clonidine is really a blood pressure medication, you know, and so that's definitely an off-label use of, of that medicine. But again, because they don't have anything in their toolkit, you know, we're looking at basically melatonin and clonidine are often the options. Sometimes um, Seroquel will be used, but Seroquel is a pretty high level medication developed for antipsychotic, you know, not definitely a preferable one for using in kids. The reason, let's talk about like the why there aren't any meds approved in kids, because that's, you know, obviously a a natural concern. But the, the test has always kind of been, can that medicine outperform what would be like um, camping in the wilderness kind of conditions? Because kids have a really good, strong sleep drive. And if you put them in wilderness camping situations, you will usually see kids sleep incredibly well. And so the, they're tired the, when it gets dark and yes. they're awake when the light, when the sun comes yes. up. Yes. <laughs> and there are no artificial sources of light, right? Yeah. Uh, when the sun goes down, you're going to have your natural melatonin release. And if they have functioning eyeballs, if their retinas are functioning appropriately, their brains will make melatonin when they are in the dark. And so that's kind of the challenge. And, and going back to the autism spectrum piece, we do see that they can have struggles with their, their melatonin activity and also struggles with like sustaining melatonin. But the question is how much of this is related to maybe having more sensitive eyeballs, you know, so Mm. like, cause one of the things that we sometimes will see in the spectrum is heightened sensory sensitivity, right? So if you have somebody who has more light sensitive eyeballs, it's going to matter even more for them to be in wilderness, dark conditions for sleep. And that may not be compatible with sometimes the way that folks are trying to regulate themselves. Is it also fair to say that um, some people on the spectrum actually have less need for sleep? Mm -hmm. And so 
I can understand how parents might be scrambling to get them to sleep more, but maybe their brains just don't need that much. Yes. Yeah. That's actually one of the other things that is really is kind of unique about the spectrum is that folks, we all have a different metabolism for sleep and there's a wide range of variability of what is normal and particularly in kids. So like the range of normal in adults can be as low as five, five and a half hours and as high as nine hours. So we're talking about like a four hour swing and all of that could be potentially normal. In kids, those swings can be as much as six or eight hours. Oh, so, like, wow. you can imagine, like, on the low end of a, a pattern versus the high end, there's a lot of individual variability. And one of the things that we've been able to see in research is that the amount of sleep needed by a kiddo on the spectrum tends to be less. Their metabolism for sleep is lower. And they also have a lot of disruptions from their sleep. So they don't tend to have the same kind of, like, deep, sustained sleep that we expect to see in a kid who's not on the spectrum. In the melatonin research with kids on the spectrum, they did see total sleep time went up by about 15 minutes. And so that was kind of one of the reinforcers for using it. But that's not a lot of time. It's not a lot of time. And, you know, which actually the funny thing is even our typical sleep drugs, they don't increase our sleep by all that much. Um, I think one of them... um, Isopiclone is the uh, the chemical name of it or the generic name. Um, it's 18 minutes of sleep, and that's like a billion dollar drug. <laughs> so, oh like, my gosh, yeah. So the challenge is, it may improve sleep a little bit and may help with regulating that circadian system. And when that circadian system is not functioning well, that may be a really important thing. My challenge is, and, and so this is kind of how I was I was trying to think of like. Why do I get so like kind of ramped up about it? Because I will admit, I have like pretty strong feelings about it. And part of it is, I think because I work in behavioral sleep, I just, it's so common for me to see families who've been told to use it when we could be doing things that are more effective. And so I was trying to think of like, how do I explain this in a way that makes sense? But I kind of came up with it. It's kind of like if you knew that your kid was eating a really a diet that was lacking a lot of essential nutrients. And you had a good multivitamin that was kind of covering the lack of nutrition that they had in their existing diet. The upside to that is you know they're getting the nutrients they need because the multivitamin is providing it. Now, admittedly, it's not necessarily providing exactly what they need because they would be better off metabolizing those nutrients from their foods, but at least we're kind of creating a safety net. They're going to get what they need. And that to me would be fine if you've already tried to get their nutrients through the normal routes, you know? So let's say you have a kiddo who's iron deficient. And again, this is like an easier example because iron deficiencies are also associated with struggles with sleep. If you have a kiddo who's iron deficient, the best thing to do is to increase their their consumption of iron-rich foods, you know? Some people don't metabolize iron supplements that well either, and it can make them sick or they're not going to be able to draw the nutrition they need from it. So your best bet is increasing iron-rich foods. The hard part about that is iron-rich foods are things like organ meats and leafy green vegetables. <laughs> so Kids' favorites. Oh, yeah. Mm, Every kid liver. <laughs> so... You know, on one hand, like we, the supplementation is not like the, the ideal route, but if we, if you've really tried hard to increase like their access to the nutrient in their diet and you can't get it through that way, then we would look at the supplement. But you know, the thing is, is that it would be good to focus on the dietary option first. And I think that that's what happens with melatonin is there's a lot we could do to help kids sleep better at night that aren't supplementation. And I feel like we kind of jump to the supplementation first. And I would, you know, I just would love 
for there to be a sense of, okay, there are other things I can do. And so that's kind of my big thing is it's like, let's try to actually help kiddos sleep better by creating the conditions their brain needs for them to be able to rest instead of trying to supplement them with this one hormone, this one thing that's only working on one part of that sleep system, especially when we know it's not always going to be that super effective anyways. So let's talk about both for kids, but for grownups too, like how do you mimic those conditions that uh-huh. your body would naturally produce melatonin in. So I always say, like, you have to think about the idea of day promoting night. Like, so, you know, when we think about sleep, we're always kind of focused on nighttime. But I always think it matters, too, to think about your daytime behaviors. So number one, for our brains to adequately produce melatonin, we have to make sure that those little retinal receptors are getting all the right inputs they need. And what that means is getting full-spectrum sunlight during the day. And this can be challenging, especially as we are taking away recesses and we're having kids like not be outside at lunchtime. So we all need to be out in bright, full spectrum light for some portion of every day. Such a good reminder. You know, and the thing is, is that we can't, we can't avoid that. And one of the, like I was actually, we had, um, we were at the lacrosse field yesterday and I was watching a little kiddo running around the field and he was wearing glasses that had turned to sunglasses. You know, there's uh, transitions glasses. And um, I will say that that to me is now, now he's being shielded from full spectrum light, right? He is, when he is outside playing, he is never getting exposure to full spectrum light. And so that is challenge number one. We got to be out in the sun. Right. (laughs) You know, and I'm just even thinking through here, then you're probably having ophthalmologists like, oh no, you should be wearing sunglasses all the time. Otherwise there's going to be damage, right? Yeah. I know. I worked at a sleep medicine practice that was housed in an ENT or eye, ear, nose and throat practice. And so of course, like the ophthalmologists like love the transitions lenses because, you know, we're keeping the eyeballs from being like overexposed. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I mean, it's just like, how are we supposed to get it right? I know. I mean, and I think, and the truth is, is that, yeah, yeah, like the challenge with ozone, like so, you know, what their argument is, is that we have the, the you know, basically our entire um, light system now is more intense than it might have been back when we had a really well-functioning ozone layer, right? But I, the flip I, side of that is we need to get sun. Right, like it can't be all or none. Like, no. I have to imagine that whenever you look at it, it doesn't mean like, okay, take sunlight away. Yes. It means like... How do we reduce, uh-huh. but still get some? Like, yeah. we're all just, let's just all focus on keeping that pendulum right in the middle. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so, like, what I always say is, like, a good rule of thumb is, like, maybe you don't need to not have sunglasses on when it's at the brightest point of the day. You know, like, if it is really the, you know, say, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., really bright, intense sun, maybe it's okay for us to wear our sunglasses then. But to always wear sunglasses... Not so great, yeah. you know, and I, it's funny, I have a lot of light sensitivity because one of my retinas doesn't work and the eyeball where the retina doesn't work, um, the problem is the iris can't really like close appropriately. So my eye is always a little bit dilated. And so what that means is intense sunlight for a long time didn't feel good to that eyeball. And I actually had to train myself. Like I had to get, I had to go through like stop wearing the sunglasses in the morning, stop wearing it in the late afternoon and like kind of really gradually exposing myself to getting used to sunlight because the sad thing is some folks aren't used to sunlight anymore, you know, and that is not adaptive for us. Right. The other challenge is we also have to make sure we eat pretty regularly during the day. 
you know, uh, a lot of um, my adults have gotten into this uh, concept of intermittent fasting. And intermittent fasting is so basically like having a shorter eating window. And I think that there are a lot of good benefits to like not snacking all day long and, you know, not having exposures to food for like 18 hours a day. But the other side of that coin is our sleep system is entrained by insulin activity. And the strongest exposure of insulin activity that's going to reinforce our sleep system is our morning exposure to insulin activity. And a lot of folks who do intermittent fasting, the meal window that they like is they won't eat anything until noon. And they'll say like noon to eight is their feasting window or you know when they're actually eating food. And the problem is, is that if you have any issues with sleep, not eating breakfast and not having your first food exposure until <coughs> noon is going to be an issue. And so um, I, what I actually recommend is like if we are going to do that intermittent fasting approach, then we got to actually focus on the calories coming in the morning and like kind of cutting off earlier in the evening. But nobody likes to do that. <laughs> and part of that is because, you know, we, we have a lot more self-control in the morning. And as, as the day goes on, that dissipates significantly. Um, but for kids, it's the same thing. Like so kiddos who skip breakfast and especially kiddos who aren't hungry in the morning, that should be like a heads up that their clock system is confused because we are supposed to wake up hungry. We're supposed to wake up with an appetite. And if we don't, chances are our clock system isn't getting the right information. So I have kiddos who have ADHD. And the hard part is they take medication for their ADHD and medication is an appetite suppressant. And so I have to talk to them pretty intentionally about, I know that their stomach will not let them feel hungry, especially like midday, but I need them to try to eat food anyways, because otherwise what will happen is if they have this long stretch during the day where they do not consume food, that lack of insulin activity will actually dysregulate their clock system. And so then we have problems sleeping at night. And it's really hard to relate the problem sleeping at night with the fact that they were not eating lunch during the day. (laughs) Right. I don't think many people think about that correlation at all. We always talk about it being mechanical eating. Like just Mm -hmm. because you're hungry doesn't mean you don't eat. You still have to eat. It's kind of a job, but you have to do it. Yeah. And it's hard because, you know, they're not going to have that appetite drive that that really is going to help. But like what happens is if they save all of their calorie consumption for the evening when their meds have worn off, what will actually happen is that dysregulates that clock system. Then they're having problems with sleep continuity at night. And for kids who have like late snacks, that can also affect their ability to fall asleep. So in order for melatonin to be active, as I said earlier, we need no insulin activity. And eating carbohydrates is going to create insulin activity. So if we're thinking about like, let's say we want kiddo to be asleep at 8.30. Well, starting around 6.30 or 7, we don't want them to have carbohydrates because that's going to be suppressing their drive for sleep. I mean, us grownups probably already recognize this because if you've ever had trouble falling asleep after having too many glasses of wine, part of that is driven by the sugar that's associated with consuming the wine. So the challenge is, is like if their bedtime snack, I had one client I worked with, their bedtime snack was like a whole bunch of Chex Mix and milk and maybe some, you know, decaffeinated soda, but soda, all of that was driving the insulin system and all of that's going to push back their ability to fall asleep. Even with kiddos who are younger, who might always go to bed with milk or, you know, I've even seen kids who go to bed with chocolate milk. Well, that actually can be a little challenging. Yeah. So I'm also yeah. wondering... 
you know, so much of what you're saying has to do with light and yeah. being in the dark. And I feel like today our houses are lit up until bedtime. Oh, and beyond, yeah. right? You know, I mean, it is when I have kids I work with who are struggling with sleep continuity, I will say one of the very common factors is they often have night lights in their rooms or maybe it's a closet light that's on with the door open or a bathroom light with the door open, hall light, having the door open itself and having light in the house. All of that ambient light suppresses right. their drive for sleep. Right. So this goes back to like we might be using the melatonin supplementation to try to overwhelm their drive for sleep when we're actively suppressing it because we have so much light exposure. Right. Right? I'm even thinking about teenagers who homework these days is all online. Oh right? my gosh, yeah. So if they're on screens until late in the night, it feels like an unfair battle. Yeah, their clock system doesn't have a chance. And that's really the hard part is if they have all this light exposure close to their eyeballs, that's exciting those retinal receptors, their clock, and they already have this predisposition to right. be nocturnal. Right. <laughs> so, and then we, they have to get up at the crack of dawn to get to school. I mean, they are not necessarily set up for success in the way that we've structured things. And so that kind of is, unfortunately, my soapbox. But I feel like before we do melatonin supplementation, we have got to think about, like, how is my routine setting my kiddo up for sleep? You know, is can I make changes to the sleep environment? If you have a kiddo who's afraid of the dark, there are a couple of different ways that we can work through that. Like, one of them is there's a company, Cloud Bee, that makes a sleep turtle and a sleep ladybug. And what that does is it's been tested in sleep labs, so the intensity of the light is not significant enough to disrupt their sleep pattern. But the upside is it also allows for them to have like a broadcast of light so that it can be feel safe and secure, and then it times out after 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's not constant light exposure. For my older kiddos, have a flashlight. You know, have it Velcroed next to the bed so they're not going to lose it. You know, they're going to know exactly where they can find it, and then they can check the light. And they can use that flashlight to make sure, okay, I'm safe. And then they can turn it back off. And the thing is, is that if we can really modify those light exposures, we're going to see sleep continuity go way, way up. Right. And that kind of goes back to like, if we set the expectation correctly, like we understand what our kid's unique metabolism is, and then we try to make sure that they're getting light in the day, dark at night, food during the day, no food at night. You know, like right. that's going to set them up for so much more success than giving them some supplement that we don't that we know is not regulated, we know may not be effective, and we also have some concerns about like what could be in it and how it's actually going to be functioning for them. So kind of your message is the first step should not be trying to hack the system and mm-hmm. find a different way around maintaining really unhealthy sleep behavior. Yeah. And so the thing is is that if you've already tried all of that and you really feel like kiddo has this, you know, their clock system isn't working appropriately, or you just know there's something more to it, then try low dose melatonin like, and really try hard to look for one that, you know, has a label that has been verified in a lab, you know, make sure it's just that one thing, not a broadcast of different things. And just be really scientific about it. Like the other thing that we saw in research, you know, um, in research studies was that Once kids started on melatonin, the parents tended to keep them on it for a long time. And that may not really be necessary because once that sleep pattern is learned, you don't need to keep it on board. So use it for like a week or two weeks, then pull it away. Like don't keep giving it every single day. If you're giving it every single day and especially for years, chances are it has more to do, like that's become the crutch, even from the kiddo's perspective, 
than it is that you really need that, right. you know? One point I want to go back and just reiterate is making sure that people are taking it at the right time. Yes. Because I know a lot of people take it when it's bedtime. Yes. And that's not the time to take it. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, is that, you know, as I said, there are some folks who will try higher dose when sleep onset is desired, but you're going to see more efficacy if you do a low dose. So one half to one milligram, hour and a half before bedtime. Sometimes even two hours before bedtime can be preferable. This is kind of your own study because you don't have a ton of regulation. So it's more like try for a week or two um, earlier and then see how that goes. And if they're too sleepy, you can push it back a little bit. Or if they're not sleepy enough, you can pull it a little bit earlier. But that is the preferred way to approach this. And, um, And really, again, after you've already tried to kind of modify their environment. Right. Kristen, thank you so much. This is such helpful information because I don't feel like this stuff gets talked about very much. We've kind of, melatonin is everywhere and it feels really benign. And so to really take a deeper dive, I think helps people decide what they're going to do. Yes. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Curious Mother. If you liked what you heard, the greatest compliment would be to share this with your community of moms and to give us a great rating on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram at The Curious Mother. And check out our bios and resources at thecuriousmother.com. Thanks for listening.